It's fantastic to have you here this morning. Um, <clears throat> turn in your Bibles to, to excuse me, Romans. We're done with Genesis. We're in Romans again. Romans chapter 12. Before we get started, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your son Jesus. We thank you that he came to this earth and gave himself for a ransom for us. Lord, as we turn to your word this morning, we pray that your spirit would dwell richly in it and would speak to us through it. Lord, I pray that the feeble words that I am about to say would not be a hindrance to your spirit's movement. Lord, we thank you for the plan of salvation and the purpose of bringing us into your family. It's in your precious and holy Son, Jesus' name, that we pray. <clears throat> Amen. Already? We'll make one more attempt at this. I haven't started reading yet, so. All right, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So, <clears throat> quite obviously, we're now in a different book of the Bible. We just finished up Genesis, and Rob had a couple weeks in the middle there where I gave him leeway to kind of go where he would like. So we're finally, we're back to Romans chapter 12. We're going to finish the book of Romans in this kind of stint in, in the book in the next couple of months. But it's been quite a significant amount of time since we've been in Romans. And, and the very first word, at least in the Greek and maybe in some of your translations, is the word therefore. In, in, the, ESV it's, in, in the ESV, it's, I appeal to you, therefore. Or if I put the comma in the right, pla uh, right place, it's I appeal to you, therefore. But in the Greek, it's first. Now, it's first for a reason, and, and I think I won't get into why I care about that. But it's first in the Greek, because it's so important for us, before we go any further in the book of Romans, to fully grasp what Paul has told to us in the first 11 chapters of this book. Now, it's at this point in Romans, that it, we've, we've divided Romans into four parts, and, and each of those parts can kind of easily be divided, but, but it's, it's in between chapters 11 and 12. It's the break between 11 and 12 that the, the real shift happens. From this point forward, by a great majority, the text is not about the theological implications of what Paul is saying, but it's rather about the applied implications of what Paul's talking about. So the tone shifts, and it's extremely important 
that we recognize that Paul for 11 chapters talked about the theology, and now and only now is he going to talk about the action or the response or the applied knowledge. And so therefore, I urge you brothers... What is there for? We've got to go all the way back to to Romans chapter 1. And I'm going to make a few references here as we go through the first 11 chapters. And I'm not going to to exhaustively go through the first 11 chapters. If you are a a good flipper through the Bible, you are welcome to follow along. I'll make mention whenever I'm going to refer to a particular passage. But you don't have to follow along. There's nothing on the screen. There won't be any of that, any of those up there. But in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul gives what I call his thesis. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it is the righteousness of God, for in it the righteousness of God, excuse me, is revealed from faith for faith, As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is Paul's, I think, thesis statement. What am I about to say, Paul says? What am I about to talk to you about for the next uh, number of chapters, 16 chapters to be exact? And he doesn't, he's not writing in chapters, but what am I going to tell you about? Simply the gospel. That's what Paul is is all about in the book of Romans. And and, and yes, there are a lot of other things that Scripture teaches us and talks about. And and, and a lot of those things we can talk about as as bits and parts of, of kind of a full and complete understanding of what the gospel is. But when Paul gives his treaty here in Romans, he is giving the gospel message in probably one of its most intricate and beautiful forms. I am not ashamed of this, he says. I am not ashamed... Of the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. If we boil down the, the good news, which is what gospel means, if we boil down the good news to its most simple statement, it's this that God, through power, through his power, brings about salvation to those who believe. Or maybe one more further, God is the God who saves. Our very first definition of who God is in our minds should always revolve around this one point. God saves. That's the good news. And it's the good news in how Paul will describe it. As we go further. Right away Paul shifts his tone. This is what I'm going to talk about. Verse 18 of chapter 1. He he starts to explain. Okay, why is it so important for God to be a God who saves? Well, it's so important because you. By the way, that's everyone. You are sinners. Well, Ryan, I I don't know what sin is. I've never heard of this Jesus person. I've never read the Bible. I don't know anything about this God. Well, actually, you do, Paul says in verses 18 to 20-ish. In verse 20 of chapter 1, he says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. 
so they are without excuse. Paul says the very first thing he says, I'm going to give you the gospel. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you about the gospel. I'm going to tell you about the good news of, of how God saved you. But the very first thing that you have to hear, the very first thing that you have to know, in order for that to make sense, is that you have no excuse. You are, in fact, a sinner. Paul will be very clear about what that, what that looks like or what that means in chapter 3. He says that as is written, verse 10, None is righteous. No, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. But Ryan, I don't know this God. Actually, Paul says, you do. Just look outside. Experience the creation that God has made. The sun goes down at night and rises in the morning. The sun was crucified on a cross, died, buried, and rose in the morning. Now in Ohio we have clouds that obscure us that, that beautiful picture, but we all know what's going on, right? We live in a wonderful area in Ohio, in northeast Ohio. So we've got all these seasons. Micah has been experiencing life with no seasons. It's boring. We can all say that because we think that we wouldn't be having fun in California. What happens in the fall? Everything dies. What happens in the spring? Everything comes back to life. From new birth, from death to new birth, this creation screams of God. There's a video, I think, I think you could probably look it up on YouTube. It's I think it's called The Fingerprint of God. And it's this, this video of how he kind of explains this pattern that we find in, in, in all of creation. You know, the golden, I think it's the golden uh, ratio, right? Where the little circle and it continues to get bigger and bigger and it always fits within itself and it's... Like that, he, he says, this is the fingerprint of God. It's all over creation. It's in, our, it's in our cells. It's in the universe. Everything spins, and it's the fingerprint of God. God is, is literally everywhere in creation. And, and we have no excuse not to know him. Not only, not only can we see it in, in nature, not only can we see it in his creation, but we can feel it inside of who we are as humans. We recognize that every single culture has had moral laws or has had some form of morality that they didn't just come up with on their own. No, they saw it in God's beautiful creation. And in God's beautiful creation, we all recognize that there is something about myself that stands in opposition to God. I am, in fact, a sinner. I am not righteous, not even a little. I do not understand and I do not seek for God aside from him. Chapter 4, Paul shifts just a little bit and he starts to talk about this, this Abraham character. Now Abraham, he saw this. He was called out of this and he was, he was shown a little bit about who God is. Told about circumcision. He's told about this, this symbolic picture of being God's. And eventually he is told to sacrifice his own son. And this, this act of obedience, this faith in what God had said was counted to Abraham is righteous, as righteousness, excuse me. 
this picture of the sacrificed son and our trust and faith in it. We are all in absolute desperate need of a Savior. Creation teaches us this. By the way, the church teaches us this. Even our secular world teaches us this in some small way. We're in desperate need of a Savior. And so what do I do? I work and I work and I try to be a better person. I try to work harder. I, I follow a set of rules and regulations. In, in the Old Testament, that was the law. But in our, in our own lives as individuals, before we know Jesus, we find ways of trying to live a better life. I don't speed. I've never murdered anybody. I don't take from my employers. I don't steal money. I don't skim money on the top off the top of my business. I'm, I'm a good and, and, and just person. No, you're not. In fact, nothing that you do will ultimately reach uh, salvation for you. Or, or maybe better put, no matter how much you struggle, no matter how much you try, no matter how much you work, you will never achieve goodness and righteousness apart from an outside force coming in and saving you from yourself. I would say at this point that's a pretty rough message, right? But I think it's a message that we absolutely must see, we absolutely must know, and we absolutely must understand in order for us to understand that God is a God who saves. So what does God do? He sends His one and only Son to live in the creation that He created in Himself. To be rejected by those he came to save and to become, as Paul puts it, a propitiation. A satisfactory sacrifice for man. What Paul means by this is that, is that Jesus, is the sacrificed lamb on the cross, is entirely enough for salvation. In fact, he is the only thing that is sufficient for salvation. And so what do we do? Paul calls us to faith. Right? Remember our definition of the gospel in chapter 1? For it is the righteousness of God, for, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith and for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What is faith? Sometimes we define faith as this thing that we muster. Like I'm going to muster bravery if somebody has broken into my house and is threatening to, to harm my family. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to muster up some courage and some boldness and I'm going to go and confront it. I'm going to, oh, I'm going to. That's not what faith is. Faith is when we finally have come to the realization that I have absolutely no power whatsoever for my own salvation. That ultimately, no matter how hard I try to do what is right, I will ultimately fail. This is what Paul means when he talks about the law. He says the law's purpose was never to be this list of things that you could accomplish. No, the law was there to reveal for us what righteousness truly looks like and to make it absolutely plain that we do not accomplish it. And we recognize that we need the Savior. 
And Jesus comes, he's, he makes his sacrifice on the cross, he pays the debt, he's the propitiation for our sins, and now, by faith in his work, by relinquishment of my own control, because ultimately I want to control everything, I give up the right to save myself over to Jesus, and at that point in my life, Paul says, we are justified by faith. Somebody say amen. We are justified by faith. What is justification? We are, we are set right in God's eyes. Period. By this relinquishment of control of salvation in my life to Jesus Christ and Him alone, I am now standing in the presence of my God as if I were without blemish. And, and man, is that good news. But there's more. Paul goes on. We have been justified in the sight of God. And now, because we have been justified in the sight of God, we put Christ into our lives. We put on the image of Jesus. And as we put on the image of Jesus, the Spirit of God begins to dwell and to twist and change and transform us into the image of Christ so that so much so that previous in our lives we were slaves to sin. Christ died, justified us, and now we are free to the Spirit and free to life in God. Before our lives in Christ, before we are justified by, by His sacrifice on the cross, we are dead to God. We are bound up to sin and death. Sometimes we think that we can do good things without the Spirit of God who dwells in us. And that is untrue. We cannot be righteous without God. We cannot be changed without the Spirit of God dwelling in us. In fact, we can look at people who are very clearly not good people. As an example of this, right? Ready for an example that you've never expected in church? Hitler is a pretty obvious bad person, right? By the way, Scripture tells me that I'm a... He confessed to be a believer. By his actions, he was not. We know the Spirit of God based on the fruit of the Spirit, which Hitler, at least at the end of his life, did not have. Perhaps there was a moment before his suicide where he changed. I'm not speaking about that. I'm speaking about his life, the evidence of his life. Hitler, in fact, did things that we could say on, on a different scale were good. But they weren't good. They were corrupted by his nature. Hitler, Hitler's chief desire, aside from eradicating the Jews, was from collapse back into reality. Follow me through on this. Hitler saved... Many people, by his actions, as their Fuhrer. Take everything else away from Hitler, you go, oh, that's a pretty good thing. He was a pretty good person. But no, he wasn't. He, he did a good thing, but he was not a good person. He did a good thing, he was not a righteous person. He was not changed and transformed by the blood of Christ. Before we know Christ, before our justification happens, we may do things that on the surface look like good things, but they're corrupted by our sin and selfish natures. 
And then Christ justifies us, changes us, transforms us. And now we are, we are dead to sin and alive to God. And now life can truly happen. Paul in chapter 7, he tells us, he tells us that this is a strange world that we live in. He doesn't use that language. I'm going to paraphrase him just a bit. We have this strange existence as believers. We are both bound to the flesh that we walk in and alive in the spirit that dwells in us. The spirit has now changed our priorities, has now changed what, what I might call the trajectory of our lives. Paul says, look, it's, this is really a difficult thing because, because how, I, I, I want so bad to do what's right. And I know that these other things that I, that I do are not right. And I try and you fail. I live in what I think is this tension between the realities of the life that I once lived and the, and the calm of this world bathed in sin and the realities of my future life in glory with God. It's this tension. He's this wretched man that I am. I wish I was different, but I'm not. And then chapter 8 begins and he says, he says this. Remember? Tension. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can, can I get another amen? There is therefore no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if Christ Jesus has justified me in, in, in the sight of his Father. Nothing I do condemns me. It's a big statement. That's a wonderful statement. I've now become an heir with Christ, the receiver of this gift of salvation that was not that was not brought about by my life, was not brought about by my actions, but was brought about by the work of God through Christ Jesus on the cross. This is what we call sanctification. A freedom from my own condemnation allows me to become a better image of Christ. And so we might ask the question, so, so what should I fear? What, what can condemn me? Paul says, listen, if, if God... Who, the, who is the only person who rightfully can condemn you, has chosen instead of condemnation for you, has chosen to send his son into this world to die for you. If he has done this work, who is there to condemn? Who is left to stand in judgment over you? No one. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. Paul says, no. Who, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Who is there to condemn us? No. No. And all these things, we are, we are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors through him who loves us. More than conquerors. But Ryan, but Paul, let's direct the question at the right person. But Paul, what about the Jews? 
In the Old Testament, it says that you chose them as, a, as an eternal possession. That they would be your people and that you would be his God, then you would be their God. It sure seems at this point in, in human history that they're no longer your people. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 are horribly confusing. But I think this is what they're about. I think, I think Paul tells us that, yes, this is, a, this is a, an okay question. It's all right for you to ask this question because we look at the people of God who God chooses and, and we could ask this question, well, what about them? It sure seems like you've abandoned them. Paul says, no, the purpose of you Gentiles being brought into the family is so that my Jewish people, my chosen race, might be drawn to me. Samson in the Old Testament, his character is a horrible bonehead. And God says at the beginning of his life, actually before he's, his conception, he says Samson is going to be raised up to essentially be a thorn in the Philistine's side. And Samson is raised up, and the only thing he really does, he doesn't unite the people of Israel to him. The people of Israel aren't calling out for salvation from God. They're just simply going through life, being oppressed by the Philistines. And, and Samson comes along, and he, and he kicks the Philistines, and he bonks them on the head with a, with a jawbone, and he kills a bunch of them. And you know what happens? The Philistines get really angry, and they go and oppress the Israelites more. You know what happens because of this oppression? Eventually... The people of Israel call out to God for salvation. They realize their desperate need for Him. Sometimes we get into places in life where we have found distance between ourselves and God because of our own sinful ways. And sometimes because of that we feel a distance. We feel a separation. And sometimes we ask the question, well, am I really saved? My answer to that is, is God has a purpose. For this distance. To draw you back to himself. Turn back to him. And be drawn back to Christ. Then. We get to chapter 12 verse 1. Therefore. Right. All of this is theological implications. All of these things are. Are, are conversations about this. In, in a theoretical. Cognitive. Discussion. And it is absolutely critical that we understand this first before we go any further. You are in desperate need of a Savior because you have sinned against the God who created you. That Savior is Jesus Christ. And when He came and shed His blood on the cross for you and you relinquished control of salvation to His life, you have become, you have become justified in the sight of God and now are in a process of being changed and transformed into the image of His Son. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, therefore, because, because you have been saved by Christ, therefore, I urge you, I plead with you, as ESV says it, I appeal to you, I beg you, brothers, not to be confused. Paul's not talking to his siblings. He's talking to fellow Christians. Therefore, I, I beg you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as, living, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. See, sometimes we put the cart 
in front of the horse. You know where the cart in front of the horse goes? Nowhere. Jesus is the horse. He is the means by which we move. He is the means by which we are saved. And He is the means by which our cart of good actions, of right living, of sanctification even happens. We look at the law in the Old Testament and we confuse it because we talk so much about Christ being the sacrifice. And we think that every sacrifice in the Old Testament was a sacrifice to cover sin. That's not what the sacrificial system was about. Think about it for just a second. If every person in the Israelite community sacrificed every time they sinned, there would be no animals left on earth. And that's not an exaggeration. No, the sin sin sacrifices are relatively puny in comparison to every other sacrifice. There's Thanksgiving sacrifices. Lord, thank you for giving me a crop. There's pleading sacrifice. Lord, I know we have sinned, and I know that this enemy is coming near to us. Please forgive us and save us from these enemies. You know what the most common one is? It's a praise. I'm really on this kick of God wants us to praise Him. In In the holy... In the holy place, right? So there's the big temple. There's there's inside that is where everybody can all the all the Jewish people can go. And then there's the holy place. And then inside that is the holy of holy. That's where the ark is. And the holy place, where only the priests are allowed to go. An offering is made continually. It's called an incense offering. It's a praise offering. It's God, you are amazing. Here is a nice smell. It's a praise offering. The vast majority of the sacrifices in the Old Testament, the vast majority of the methods by which the people of God worshipped God were not sin sacrifices, but were praise, honor, thanksgiving, worship sacrifices. And Paul says, look, therefore, because you have been saved by the blood of Christ, been justified and now are being sanctified because of all this, because of the work of Christ, now sacrifice yourself as a living and holy and acceptable act of worship. I do not do good works because I need to save myself. That's foolish. I seek to be more like Christ because I want to worship the God who has saved me. And I do, by the way, only through the power of God, the mercy of God. Well, what does this look like? We talked about this a little bit on Wednesday night in our Bible study. We were talking about 1 Peter chapter 2. Same kind of theme has happened in verse 2. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind and by the testing, by, and by that test, and that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, you do not, you do, not do good things because those good things will bring salvation into your life. No, that's the work of Christ and Him alone. You do good things because you love your God and you worship Him through the transformation of your life. In fact, you can't be transformed without the Spirit of God transforming you. And I think what Paul is telling us here and what Paul will continue to tell us, because from this point forward, he's going to give us action words. He's going to give us steps to take because we in this life have have a cognitive realization that I have to, in fact, move. To do these things. So therefore, when the opportunities arise in your life, and you can make a choice to sin, 
or to not sin, you make the choice to not sin. It's a living sacrifice. Therefore, brothers, I urge you to be transformed by the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for the the work of your Son, Jesus. And the freedom from our bonds to sin. We thank you that in the moment of our justification, you gave us your spirit to dwell in us, to speak to us, to convict us, and to guide us into transformation. Not as, not as covering for our own mistakes. We know that we cannot accomplish that through our works. But because your son gave himself for us, we in turn worship you with changed lives and changed hearts. Father, we praise you and we honor you. We sing this song now, this responsive worship. It's in your precious and holy son, Jesus' name.